Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. Today I'm speaking with James Lindsay. James is a PhD in mathematics. He's an author. He also writes for Aereo Magazine. And most recently, he was part of the team that did, uh, I don't want to really call them hoax papers, but um, papers on grievance studies. Hi James, thanks for joining me. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Um, so I was just wondering if you want to just give a little bit about your background and we can just go from there. Um, sure. Which part of my background? Because it's pretty, uh, it's pretty varied and eclectic. Would I mean, you like to talk? Well, about? I mean, like the, what you were doing with the grievance studies, because one of the books you'd uh, you'd written, uh, everyone is everybody's wrong about God, or everyone yeah. is wrong about God. I read that. Like, I first became aware of you after the conceptual penis paper there. Okay. And then, um, then I started following you, and then the near peer. Uh, near real peer review thing, which is also hilarious. Then I started looking to your, some of your books and I just, that one seemed interesting. So I read that. So if you want to maybe come out from that way. Okay, sure. So, um, in 2014 or so, I, uh, it was really a little earlier than that. My research interest had turned from philosophy to psychology because I wanted to try to understand what people mean when they say the word God, uh, assuming that I don't believe in God, so I don't I don't have a theological basis that I can share with them. I, I've thought about that for decades and given it up. But I wanted to understand what they were saying on the assumption that they probably aren't crazy and they probably mean something very serious, and I wanted to take that seriously and recognize it, but I also wanted to understand it without having to appeal to theology to do it. So I wrote this book, and it really was a synthesis of two concepts that I had been working on at the same time as I'd studied religious and moral psychology. One concept was, as I said, understanding what people mean by the word God, which I drew mostly from fusing together moral psychology and religious psychology. And then another was that I recognized that the atheist movement had become quite religious in its own right, uh, attached to the idea that they had taken atheism as a banner that they rallied around and being that atheism is in its most simple expression a, a, a position that some people would call a negative position or a null position. It doesn't assert anything. It says that there's a particular kind of belief that I don't have. and that It doesn't say anything more than that. People started trying to figure out how to be an atheist how to do atheism, how to be a good atheist. And I, I noticed that what they were doing was finding other moral frameworks and uh, structures that give them purpose in life and ways to organize communities and, and community hierarchies and to place themselves within them and a way to feel a sense of control over the environment that they live in that, that mirrored religious behavior almost exactly. And as it worked out, for a variety of reasons that are probably mostly reasonable, the atheist community largely took up social justice as its uh, its cause that it organized kind of almost religiously around. So the book outlined how I saw that that happening. It called for the end of atheism as a movement. It called for us to move beyond trying to be atheists and to look at the question of God's existence in a different way that I thought would kind of split the middle between the raging argument between, you know, I believe in God and no, I don't believe in God and you're a theist and I'm an atheist and all of this nonsense. So 
looking at that gave me a lot of reason to be looking at what social justice was doing and how it, even outside of the atheist community, was acting quasi-religiously as well. And so that sort of became a genesis point for my interest in looking at what we later called grievance studies. It was gender studies is all we were interested in at first, uh, but what grievance studies was doing. Simultaneously, literally simultaneously, Peter was having conversations with various people, Peter Bogosian, I should say, uh, who, of course, is one of my other collaborators on on this uh, grievance studies project. And he had come across the idea on his own and asked me about it at some point when I was writing Everybody's Wrong About God, that the um, that the religion that the, that the scholarly canon in gender studies functions for social justice activists in the same way that the Bible or other scriptures operate for Christians or religious people. And he started asking people about that and everybody thought he was nuts. Nobody had the slightest idea what he was talking about until he asked me and I said, oh yeah, that's exactly the kind of stuff I'm looking at. So then he and I started to become very interested in looking at gender studies in particular together and seeing what was going on. So we started following the real peer review Twitter account. We don't have anything to do with that, by the way. We just follow it. And we started uh, reading papers in their big famous papers like Doing Gender that were kind of foundational. That was a 1987 paper that that kind of gave us insight into the way these people were thinking about things. And we decided to write the conceptual penis as a social construct, kind of as a reaction to the feminist glaciology paper coming out, which because it attacked science directly, um, we decided it was kind of a last straw. Plus, it got a lot of attention. And our thought was, well, if you can have feminist glaciers, then you can have, you know, anything goes just about. So let's <laughs> walk in the shadow of, of Alan Sokol and do this thing. So that was sort of the genesis that got us to the point of the conceptual penis. And not to rehash that history that's been rehashed several times already, but uh, the long and short from there is, the conceptual penis was an interesting experiment. Mostly it was a failure because the journal that published it was, I can't call it predatory because my lawyers say I can't, <laughs> but that's, that's as far as I'll go with that. Um, so that didn't prove the point we wanted to prove. It raised a lot of questions. It got us a lot of good criticism and a lot of really bad criticism. So we took the good criticism that we got, mostly from people that don't agree with us, although Alan Sokol was was himself very instrumental in providing good criticism. And we decided to take on the project that we did to look at it much more carefully. And we got Helen Pluckrose involved. And then not long after, Mike Nana, who well, at first was just our filmmaker, but eventually became kind of a consultant and team member. He didn't write any papers, but he was he was definitely there with us for all of the hard stuff. He runs our YouTube channel. I guess it's his YouTube channel. It's Mike Nana's. It's, it's the name of it. It's Mike yeah. Nana. So anyway, uh, we, we cobbled together this team. And you said you didn't want to call it hoaxes. And that's great. Thank you. Um, it was at first, though. We were writing outright hoaxes at first, just like the conceptual penis, without being quite so over the top. And all of those failed. And that so we started in August of 2017, and it was literally the weekend before Thanksgiving of 2017 that we realized that this isn't working. 
And we committed to what Peter called a three-week plan that went from the end of November to the end of January. Uh, it, was, it was a long three weeks. Rewriting all the papers that we had already done that we thought were salvageable and reorganizing how we would approach it, making the project about learning the field from the inside while retaining our perspective from the outside and learning to criticize it properly. All right. Well, okay. Just one quick thing. Like when you said that you had that three week plan. So maybe since, you know, I know most of it was postmodernism, but you know, you had a little bit of neo-Marxism in there. So <clears throat> several three week plans, I guess is the same as several five year plans, but um, yeah, I wanted to touch on something with uh, like what you'd mentioned, just a bit of a background on me. I worked with the military for close to 13 years. Um, I was always a civilian contractor, but I was in war zones. Mm-hmm. And I got back to North America permanently in 2014. I left before social media was a thing. No. And, and when I was on the basis, you were very limited to what you can do. So I, you know, I, and I started watching, you know, I, we had access to YouTube, so at least I could watch stuff. Um, and, you know, I've been an atheist. I'm pushing 50. I'd been an atheist since I was 16. So it was not something I thought about. It was, like you said, I didn't wake up in the morning saying, how can I be the best atheist in the world or anything like that? But, you know, I, some of the books were coming out, like the Sam Harris book came out and um, the Hitchens book came out. Um, I mean, I preferred the Hitchens much more to the Sam Harris. Not that I really have any, anything against Sam Harris. I actually kind of respect him. But um, like I said, I but when I get, got back, I saw all this insanity. And the first thing that popped in my head was, these are blasphemy laws. Like, what are you doing? And then your paper that you, or the the article you written in Aereo, um, you know, uh, the religion of social justice, uh, I think it was called, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean that, yeah. like that struck a huge chord with me because that was the first thing I thought. I mean, you know, I'm like, you know, and I'd just come back from Afghanistan at that point. I'm like, you know, I was, you know, I spent I spent close to seven years there, and I was like, you know, I'm coming back from this place where they are actually installing, you know, they have all these laws installed. People get killed for this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I come back and I see this in North America and especially coming out of the States where, yeah. I mean, you know, I think your constitution is one of the most brilliant documents and, you know, it's like completely founded on the law, uh, you know, the, the values of the enlightenment and they're just throwing it away. Yeah. It's uh it was the, the phrase used to be that you heard a lot and you sometimes still hear it was political correctness, but now you always just hear people yelling about hate speech and blasphemy is hate speech against religious precepts. It's all it is. So when you say that there have to be restrictions or laws against hate speech, you're saying that there have to be blasphemy laws. And, um, it's of course completely wrongheaded for the same reason that it's wrongheaded everywhere else. It comes up and that it doesn't work out everywhere else. It comes up. So it's really concerning, and that's actually part of what got us motivated was was all of this stuff that became just completely not allowed to be said. Now, there wasn't some law. You didn't – now, in England, they have problems. You know, you put the wrong tweet out and the cops show up. But there wasn't like, you know, there's a law saying that you couldn't say awkward or rude things about trans people or racial minorities or whatever. But there was definitely a large amount of social enforcement that would – uh, try to make you pay a severe price for doing that. And that was really concerning to us, um, especially when it started to, to 
mobilize on social media and of course companies businesses etc don't know what to do about an outrage mob except to try to make the problem go away for a long time then you know cancel culture as they kind of call it now worked it still kind of works but it's losing its grip i think just kind of looking around um people were getting fired they were getting bullied out of their careers they're getting bullied into suicide over over this stuff and it was just absolutely a intolerable and b as people who had worked you know diligently for years in the atheist kind of activist world it was blatant the same thing that you saw is what we saw like this is blasphemy being brought to the united states and canada in particular uh in the states at the time by means of a different moral framework and that's where the research i was doing that tied uh, that explained, I guess, how moral frameworks work within a religious context started to make a lot of sense. I think that's the first thing I saw when I was looking at social justice arising within the atheist context was that they were building a moral structure that was then being adhered to in a very religious way and the blasphemy restrictions, which they called political correctness, and then pretended it was just a way of being polite, uh, were were really the thing that that tipped me off that it was worth looking at you know, pretty rigorously. Yeah, I mean, okay, The when you're talking about the social justice, that was, again, when I came back, that was the first time I'd heard of it, like Atheism Plus. Uh-huh. I was like, I'm like, what is this nonsense? And it, okay, I'm I'm an ex-Muslim, um, and I never really was part of any movement ever in my life. And then when I got back, I, I you know, this group, Ex-Muslims in North America, mm-hmm. and the two founders were, you know, pretty adamant about free speech, and that's what attracted me to that. And, I kind of use that now when I speak a little bit, um, especially because I speak, I started speaking a lot about Islam more when I came back. But like this atheism plus, I'm like, you know, like you said, trying to be a better atheism. Um, there's a thing in Islam called takfir of how to be a good Muslim, right? And I started saying it's, we have this ex-Muslim takfir, like you're not ex-Musliming correctly if you don't uh-huh. do this. Like if you don't drink alcohol, you're not being a good ex-Muslim. And I mean, I've heard some people say that. I'm like, well... You know, they don't want to, they don't want to, they don't have to. But it's like, oh, yeah. it was de- denied to us, so we should drink it now. I'm like, And I started seeing the same thing with that Atheism Plus crap. Yep, totally. It was to the point where when, so this all would have been around the same time as what you were looking at, so around 2014, 2015, I started calling Atheism Plus religion minus, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Um, and they it's it's exactly the kind of thing you were talking about it was this social movement in which they were trying to enforce the ways that somebody who latches onto a particular label, particular label or identity should behave and then to imbue that with meaning and to imbue the activities connected to that with purpose social justice is just wrought through with with purposeful action it is it is a great way if you don't know what else to do with your life and you care about issues in society to give yourself purpose but you know just having purpose isn't really enough you have to be able to act in ways that are you know effective and responsible and not merely you know this kind of almost almost narcissistic or selfish you know my way makes me feel good therefore it's great um, and so there's, you know, there are pieces that are definitely missing there. And it was really for me, like for you, very, very concerning. And I see the same kind of stuff, you know, they were trying to tell you what a good atheist had to do. A good atheist had to be into science in this way, not, not just science, but into science in a particular way. You had to like 
the right characters, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye, et cetera. You just had to think they were great. You know, then they started turning on the kind of what I have come to call the rationalist atheist, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Uh, Hitchens was a different case because I don't think anybody really wanted to go after somebody with terminal cancer and then who had died. But they weren't really kind about him either, given that context. And the Atheism Plus crowd was just absolutely vicious, like needlessly vicious about that stuff. Uh, and they still are. I don't think they call themselves Atheism Plus anymore. Maybe they do. I don't know. But that crowd, they still blog together. They still just snipe and say vicious, nasty things about people. And it's just really unfortunate that that's what that devolved into. It's like they had a you know, a religious movement that started off and then was was stunted or something and that just turned inward and got super toxic. Yeah, I mean, okay, I the whole atheism plus thing, but I think there was a fault and, I, you know, I was never part of this or anything like that. I wasn't, you know, I didn't start doing anything on YouTube until about six months ago and I wasn't part of any of this stuff. But the fault of it, I think, was some of the people who's, who were pushing too much of the rationalism. And I, 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 I work in IT. I'm a layman when it comes to, you know, like physics and biology and stuff, but I, that's pretty much half of what I read. Uh, but pushing the rationalism, pushing just pure reason, I think there was an issue there because, you know, you have, you would see people going to really weird things. Like they could have gone into social justice you know, the way it is now, or I you know, saw people going into, like friends of mine who never believed in God, but all of a sudden started going into the, was that the, the law of attraction, that crap? Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I, I, I don't want to call it like they're looking for a replacement for religion, because like I said, some of these people had never believed in their lives. But it was just something that was lacking. And I, at one point, equated it to the, what, you know, the, the account of Genesis, which is in all three Abraham, you know, the books of the three Abrahamic faiths, says they, what religion denied them wasn't science or reason because God said, I did all this, I'm the reason, right? It was the the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's what was denied them. That's what the priestly class held. Like, what is good? What is evil? What is moral? What is, what is ethics? And I thought, like, the pure reason and the pure science end of it kind of fed into what atheism plus became. Sure. So the thing is, my my research at the time was showing me that the reasons that people so this is this is a complicated thing because people misinterpret this to mean humans are naturally religious animals and therefore must be religious. And that's that's incorrect. Uh, there are millions of people who don't really have religious or even kind of apparently, you know, weakly religious behaviors and are just fine. But it's difficult. So what it was showing me is that human beings form religions or seem to have formed religions and they're drawn to religious architectures, particularly to meet a variety of psychological and social needs that they have. And those include a need to make meaning or and give attribution to things in their lives. They include a need to feel that there is a sense of control, whether that's control on their own like they can influence the world around them or they can control themselves or whether that's that the world is under control itself, the sort of Jesus take the wheel belief, God will take care. And then a third reason is to organize, establish and maintain communities. And all of those needs are pretty common to humans and you will find people seeking to find ways to meet them. So in particular, 
there is, I find it very highly, like, first of all, the moral thing, as you were saying, the knowledge of good and evil is, is absolutely central. And that ties into community hierarchies and how we form uh, cultures and subcultures within those and enforce their uh, boundaries and, and membership and place people within the hierarchy. We're very, very sensitive to that. Even when we try to pretend we're non-hierarchical, we still are. And then there's the overarching need for purpose and, you know, to have something that you can do. And then that ties into the feeling of, of a need for control and to community. The community should be achieving things, but in particular control because, uh, one of the purposes that we all see is to make the world better. And by better, we often mean more under our control and less harmful or dangerous, less uh, uncertain. And so these things all tie together. And what people are often looking for is a way to create what are called in the psychological literature attribution schemas, where they can explain why those structures they're building make bigger sense than just we made it up. Uh, because ultimately it all feels when you really think about it at first deeply, but after you think lo longer, it gets better. Um, but when you first think about it deeply, it all feels a bit arbitrary. And the second you think it's arbitrary, it doesn't work anymore. The magic is gone. So you will find people drawn to things that provide what, uh, you could call attribution or attributional schema where they can say, okay, this thing, the law of attraction or whatever explains how and why what I experience in life works. This explains what is good and what is bad. This explains why it's meaningful and purposeful for me to do what it is. And I think there's actually an underlying need that a lot of people have that they don't do. And it can be done, I think, but it takes a lot of hard work. So most people will never do it uh, to overcome the desire to have transcendence. So one of the biggest pro like projects that I've had since maybe 2014 going forward, so the last five years or so, has been to try to make purpose a local phenomenon, to help myself particularly, but then people around me and then reaching out further to help people understand. And I wrote a book about death that really, the, this is the point of the book about death that I wrote, it's called Life and Light of Death, is that purpose is local. Purpose is close to hand. Purpose is not this huge transcendent thing. So what's the purpose of life? The purpose of life is to live life, which means to actually experience it and try to make it a positive experience for yourself and those around you. But it's very difficult if you start thinking, oh, well, I'm going to die and I don't believe in an afterlife. So there's not going to be anything after that. And eventually all of my works like Ozymandias will be destroyed. And it's all vanity to believe that anything that we do is going to have truly lasting impact. It's very easy to start thinking, what's the point of life? What does it matter? And that's this innate need, I think, that keeps cropping up psychologically to have transcendence to our our sense of purpose. And it's very difficult to overcome that. And so when you start looking at crap like the law of attraction, you're already tapping into that. Um, it's this kind of transcendence that gives life, you know, a meaning and a purpose. Even a lot of non-religious people still will admit, I believe everything happens for a reason. And, you know, that's <laughs> a deepity because superficially it's it's true on an easy, simple reading. Um, everything does happen for a reason. That's called causality, and we're well aware of how that goes. But um, the reason usually doesn't have anything to do with you. 
It, it just doesn't. And so, you know, the deeper but false reading is everything happens for this solid solipsistic re- reason that has something to do with me. You know, this terrible this tree fell on my house to teach me a lesson or to keep oh. me from going on a vacation that I would have been hurt on. You know, people want to have explanations for what's going on. And this is, again, it taps right back into that, you know, kind of the comb correlated need for a sense of, of control over life and a sense of uh, being able to explain purpose and, and, and meaning in life. And I think that it's it's difficult. The last chapter or next to last chapter in that book was filling the religion gap. And it doesn't tell you how to fill the religion gap, which is maybe my big mistake. But um, if we don't find ways to meet those needs outside of a religious or a fanciful or a, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know what to call law of attraction except woo. <laughs> uh, and if we don't find a way to fill those needs rigorously, I'll say, then we will find ways to fill them non-rigorously or probably slip into, into nihilism and, and the, the kind of despair that, oh, nothing matters. And so, uh, you know, everything's rotten and I can, it doesn't matter if I'm good or bad. It doesn't matter if I try. It doesn't, you know, this kind of just despair that's, that's achieving nothing and, and building nothing. Well, okay. I mean, what you're talking about, like pe- even people who are non-religious will say, okay, everything happens for a reason. Um, so I spent time in war zones and especially in Afghanistan, you'd be on bases and they'd get rocketed. But usually you would hear the rocket whistle and like if you're on a, you know, I be, have been on bases where the rockets have landed or it you know overshoots the base and you just hear an explosion and the Taliban didn't have enough arms to just do you know, multiple volleys so once you heard that you were fine but they would still make you run to the bunkers some of us like a lot of the civilians we were there a long time we got fatalistic and there were also soldiers who'd done a couple of tours and they were fatalistic and it was like yeah if it's your time it's your time and we would you know I worked in IT technically the IT sections of bunker so I just sat in there and watched movies for a couple hours instead of running to a bunker so you know even there like you know I was like you know, if it's my time, it's my time. It's, I don't really believe that. I don't believe I'm predestined to have a time, but you still use that to like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and avoid the rockets type of thing. Yep. Yep. And it's really easy, especially you start looking at the hard, you called, you know, we talked about it as like the hard rationalist atheist thing. You start talking about like Sam Harris's book about free will. I I have really complicated thoughts about that. I honestly believe he's correct, but I think that the second we start thinking of ourselves seriously as being moist robots who are are doing things that are completely outside of our control, that we lose something integral to human psychology. So I actually think that that is a truth about the world we should ignore, except when we have to slow down and think differently. And that would, you know, if you want to get into where that kind of line of reasoning comes. I would say to look at Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. When you think fast, we should believe we have free will. When you think slow, you should believe we don't. And then same thing comes up in Joshua Green's book, Moral Tribes, and he talks about it as as the camera's automatic setting versus the camera's manual setting. And so when you're in automatic mode, we have free will. And when you are thinking in uh, manual mode and trying to get super precise answers to things that you have to think out carefully, then we don't. And this is a very, very unsatisfying, this is my resolution to that that uh, grim picture painted by uh, what's called non-compatibilist views on free will. And even my, my resolution to it is people consider it to be completely unsatisfactory because it feels very arbitrary. 
that, you know, we're actually trying to believe something that that's not true or should we should proceed as though we believe something that's not true most of the time. And then they want to argue, you know, that, well, then the right thing to do is show that the the thing that we're believing is that, you know, most of the time is actually true in some sense. So you come up with what people call compatibilism. Other people believe that there's libertarian free will and there's all kinds of, of things people do to try to justify uh, the discomfort that's caused by a icy cold rationalist take on everything. Um, I just want to kind of pivot back to those papers you wrote because sure. Uh, now you still see the stuff in the new real real peer review and all that. And what was, there was that one recent one um, that was kind of like your dog park paper, but they were. I, I think they took it to another level. So, I mean, you still see these things coming out and based on what you, you know, what you had said about how, like what you, Peter and Helen had said about how long it took to get the papers into the journals. Do you think they're like, if they are going to correct their methodology, which I doubt, but do you think it would take a a little bit of time for those like better papers to come through or something more rigorous or? So at this point, what I would say, so let's assume that the day that our grievance studies thing landed all of the grievance scholars in the whole world like woke up from a bad dream and they're like, ah, we have to be more rigorous today. Then if that were the case, then we would already be seeing the rigorous papers. Three to four months, you would start to see a massive turn in what's coming out in the literature. Um, that said, I don't think that they're likely to reform whatsoever until they're forced to. And so far, they have not been forced to by their academic communities around them. Um, so... I think that's probably why you're seeing the same kinds of papers still coming out. Now, that one that that was on Real Peer Review about the dogs being white supremacy um, was a 2018 paper. So I don't think there was any chance that that paper itself would have been influenced one way or another by the work we had done. But we should already be seeing the ship turning if everybody kind of woke up and said, oh, no, we need to turn the ship. We need to become more rigorous. And we are not seeing that. So I don't think that we should conclude that they are trying to reform. In fact, their behavior so far, which has mostly been to try to ignore us and say that pretend that we don't exist uh, and that our work was completely irrelevant, kind of indicates that they don't have the will to change and they don't believe that we've pre presented a persuasive argument that they should change. Not that... Um, I don't want to be so pessimistic, but I don't think that there's really any argument we could we could present them that would lead them to change their view because critical theory is designed specifically to turn around any argument that's critical of it and make it a tool of, of an oppressive uh, power dynamic that's trying to stamp out, you know, goodness in the world. So it's I don't know what could possibly influence them without there being a massive sea change in, in academic culture around them. But no, I don't think that we should be, I do think that we should be seeing more rigorous papers coming out and we don't see that. So I don't think that we have any good evidence to believe that, that grievance studies uh, as a kind of broad brush operation has made much change. And we will still see these crazy papers come out until it becomes absolutely untenable for somebody to become, you know, promoted, hired, or tenured because they've written and published them. Uh, after, okay, the, I mean, I, I think Peter was the only one who faced real danger at the Academy, and then he's up for that um, IRB reviewer. I, I don't know if that's still going on with him. 
But I mean, it is still going on, yeah. yeah. But I mean, at least there was some outpouring of support from academics. Um, do you think, like, with something like that, and then maybe, you know, once the the semester ends and as you're gearing up for the fall, would do you think there might be some changes at some schools, or do you think it's just going to continue? I think it's possible. I think it, I don't want to say that there'll be some changes at some schools, like so specifically. I think there is a there are a number of things that are going on that are all hopeful, um, which I think what we're starting to see is a overall change in, in the culture. I think there's an awareness that a lot of academics aren't willing to admit yet that our work did show something of great significance and revealed a problem that does need to be addressed. They aren't ready to step up yet. And so our continuing work is going to start including primarily rousing sleepy academics or afraid academics or nervous academics or whatever they happen to be along with the, their counterparts in, in everyday culture to start having the courage to speak openly and honestly about what they think about these things. Because we think that once a critical mass of, of people start doing it, then there it's going to unleash the flood that we have every good reason to believe exists that people are sick of this grievance studies and social justice nonsense and they're ready to put up uh, take a stance against it, but nobody's willing to be the one who gets canceled over taking a stance against it. So we need enough people to where people feel safe to start being honest about what what they see. And that's, I think, going to be the deciding factor. And whether that starts up this fall, I don't know. Um, I would love to see it start up as school starts again this fall. I think that's likely to be a little bit early if I can, you know, with my own work and Peter and Helen and Mike alongside me, we will, and, and, you know, other people who are helping as well. Uh, I think we will try to jimmy the circumstances to to make that happen. But I would expect, I mean, I've been telling Peter all along, I guess, that because he's the most easily uh, depressed by the lack of change in academia of the four of us, that we wouldn't start to see any substantive change supposing our work was as successful as it was, we wouldn't see any substantive change for at least two to three years and the ship won't turn for 10. And so, because you have this, I mean, you, you say the academic institution and you think about one university, but think it, you got to remember there are thousands of them. And so you're talking about literally a gigantic boat, then they don't turn quickly. So it'll be a while. Uh, but I think we'll see the first substantive changes probably um, in the coming year or two. However, saying that the outcome of this 2020 American presidential election will influence things rather dramatically, I I fear. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a whole other thing. But okay, what you're talking about, like, you know, the academic institutions, I work for government. And I've seen the diversity training and stuff that's coming in. Uh, our Prime Minister in Canada, I don't know how much or little you follow him, but the guy is basically a walking emo social justice caricature. Yes, I mean, but he's a beautiful man. Yeah, whatever. Um, the, I mean, they put up, it was it was two years ago, I think they, they changed it where all the chairs at all the universities had to be diverse. You know. Right. And things like that. And I personally don't care. I mean, I don't care if it's men, women, whatever, you know, get elephants in there for Christ's sakes. I just show me that they're the most qualified, but I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't understand where we lost the idea that 
merit means something. Someone's worked hard and, you know, deserves this position. Like, when did it, like, okay, I'm, I'm you know, okay, whatever. I'm a person of color. I hate that term. Um, you know, I'm just using, but like, I don't want to give, be given a job. I don't want to be given a promotion. I don't want to be given consideration because I'm brown. Right. Yeah, I hear that from Mike a lot also. So Mike, of course, Mike Nana works with us. It does the videos is half black. A lot of people maybe don't know that, but he is. And his whole career in, in entertainment so far has been a series, as he describes it, of temptations to where he can take the easy road and be cool because he's brown or he can take the hard road and, you know, try to get somewhere on merit and have to improve his skills to reach the level that that you know should be what's going on in whatever industry somebody's working in so he completely sympathizes with that view um and i actually am very concerned about its now encroachment into government especially in like we talked about you you've mentioned canada which Mm -hmm. is kind of concerning on multiple levels we mentioned uk where they're the police will show up if you tweet about trans people the wrong way Mm -hmm. and um somebody's defining what right and wrong ways to tweet about that are, which is a bit frightening. And then you have uh, this encroachment, not just into, you know, it's, it's the rot is, is deepest and most far spread in academia. It's encroaching into government. It's encroaching into corporate HR cultures. It's encroaching into hobbies. I get emails. I just tweeted about it, you know, yesterday. I get emails every day from somebody it's in my kids elementary school what do i do it's in my academic department to a level i didn't know was possible what do i do it's in my rock climbing club what do i do it's in you know it's in my acapella chorus somebody (laughs) said on twitter what do i do it's creeping into everything and i mean i just now as many people saw on twitter reviewed this book for critical dietetics and critical nutrition studies um, the review should be coming out sooner or later. I've just finished writing the actual review, but I, I kind of live tweeted my experience reading the book. Yeah, I was watching and, that. Yeah. If I could impress upon people one thing, I, I always say this and I say a different one thing every time. So take that with a grain <laughs> of salt. But if I can impress upon people, at least this one thing is that this ideology is truly parasitic and its mission is there's a paper where they openly compare themselves favorably to viruses like HIV and Ebola <laughs> is to spread itself into other walks of life and politicize them along its lines. And so what would happen? It's the same thing that happened in the atheist movement that's happening within the skeptic movement. It's now happening in the church. Which church? All of them. The the Gospel Coalition has primers on Foucault and Derrida and Kimberly <laughs> Crenshaw now. The Gospel Coalition. I mean, holy shit. It's creeping into everything. And the mission is get people with our worldview into the system, have them start complaining. And then what happens is most of your, you know, average, you have the kind of three types of people to oversimplify. You have people who subscribe to it. You have people who uh, want to fight it. And then you have most of the people in the middle who just want to enjoy the stuff they do and they don't want to get into the political mess and they quit. So what you have then is you have this completely toxic environment where the the broad middle that actually supports the thing and makes it work bails out because it just became political and it ruins everything and it's just it's a it's a it's a nightmare march and the worst part for me is i see it happening from 
It was like the right wing watched this happen and decided that this was a great idea to pick up. So you see like the politicization of like every sport now. You have, you know, this hockey now, it's like somebody's wrong for having sung a racist song in the 1930s and they also sing, you know, the, yeah, the banner is. song for the thing. Then you have like the freaking NFL. It's like, let's progressively kneel and now let's get the fucking vice president of the United States walking out on it's like let's make let's make our hobbies political war zones. What a freaking great idea. And a lot of this is being driven by this ideology which since the 1960s has openly been saying we need to make the personal political. We need to step into other walks of life and politicize them along our agenda. Critical dietetics I don't know anything about dietetics. I know very little about nutrition. I mean, I try to eat healthy and read the best that I can and make the best guesses I can based on what I know, but I don't know anything about that field. And I was asked to review a book on critical dietetics. I went into this thinking, how the hell am I going to do this? I don't know anything about dietetics. Well, no problem. The book never really mentions it. It's a whole book that never really mentions the subject because all it does is complain about how it's filled with all these power dynamics and biases and it's how the imperative – and it's the last sentence of the book, the imperative in, – in the declaration at the beginning of the book, a declaration at the beginning of a textbook <laughs> is to uh, politicize the field in terms of forwarding social justice. And it's like holy crap. They're trying to politicize everything and it's it creates toxic dynamics to where eventually they are the only people left and they're able to to mop up just a couple of quick things on that uh, i don't know how quick they're gonna be but the first like okay the dietetics when i first saw you type that out or like tweet it out i was like all i could think of was dianetics because it was just so close and i'm like okay so they're two bs things then dianetics and dietetics like whatever it is but when you're talking about politicizing everything i talked to someone about this and it's kind of kind of go back to religion a little bit, but um, so you know when there was only three networks, or even when cable was first starting, and you didn't have that much choice, you had like all the water cooler shows and things like that, or people talking about the Super Bowl. So that was kind of like a a shared myth that everyone you know could talk about, right? Like people telling stories around the campfire or whatever. Sure. But when you're politicizing this and you're causing divisions. You're, you're, you're like, we don't have any myths left except for what they're offering us, right? Well, sure. There's, there's the issue that, I mean, 57 channels and nothing's on, they say. So um, there's this, and it's really, you know, there are thousands of channels now. And like you mentioned on the basis, YouTube, you can go literally watch only the people you want to. I got into, and maybe you guys have seen this. I don't know. I got into this guy that, makes knives out of like potatoes and stuff in japan it's just, you can watch whatever you want on youtube and um like literally you can watch anything you want on there so it's very easy for people to to lead themselves into their own kind of worldview and when you talk about shared myth you know there is it, it becomes very difficult to have an overarching one whether things are being politicized or not even so we kind of are able to fragment into our own interest groups and then it's very difficult to talk to people you know, outside of that, if that's where we spend most of our time. And then when we find people who disagree with us, the cognitive dissonance that rises up is much stronger because no longer do we live in a society filled with diverse opinions that we just have to deal with and we're used to having to deal with them. Everybody we interact with on, an, on a regular basis shares our opinion. So it's much more upsetting and radicalizing and, and fear inducing when we run into somebody who has one that's very divergent. Um, there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on with that. Uh, and it, 
runs in parallel if it's even when it's not explicitly you know built up with this intersectional idea where we need to carve down the population to to very kind of small and balkanized groups that are competing for you know shared amount of attention or or interest or or dominance of narrative or whatever it happens to be and uh it makes a call for us to remember i think how important it is to focus on things that bring us together so I think that that's actually something we really should be paying a lot more attention to, you know, whether it's, you know, we're all people at the biggest level, you know, we're all humans, we're all trying to get through this together and make our best guesses at how to do that. So let's put aside some of these differences, reach across the table and be friends. Um, whether it's, you know, I can't say on a freaking Canadian show that we're all Americans, so, ha. Ah. Yeah. So, but you get me, you know, reaching across, you know, we're... Maybe it's like all the people who like hockey can reach across and say, you know, we all like hockey. We all want the games to be good. We all want to be able to come to the games and have them be fun. So the people who are trying to make this crap not fun um, need to, uh, you know, we need to ignore them because they're allowed to say what they're going to say. They're allowed to carry on as much as they want to carry on. But we also need to to remember that, you know, okay, you think this and I think that, but the point is that we're able to go to hockey games and have fun together. So appealing to these um superordinate uh markers i think is 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 truly of value of course my my intersectional friends would say that you know by playing a song that was sung by somebody who also sang racist songs or wrote racist songs or whatever they happen to be um that that creates an exclusive environment where certain people are marginalized and and oppressed and kept out they're excluded from being able to participate in that fun but really that's a matter of perspective and um nobody likes to hear that that some part of life involves sucking it up and that some people have to suck things up more than other people but this is actually a part of life not to have some weird argument for the status quo but it's actually true and if you actually look around and ask people you'll find out rather than you know wallowing in your own self-pity as stephen fry would would admonish us that other people are sucking like people you think aren't sucking stuff up are sucking stuff up more than you think they are um a lot of us have harder times than you think and sharing in that can generate empathy and the willingness to to have genuine tolerance and and you know openness to experience as opposed you know real liberal values as opposed to um constantly wallowing in our own narrow perspective and how we have it the worst which is called competitive victimhood and is kind of a defining problem of our age yeah okay the victimhood thing um i so like I said, I work for a government and it's up in northern Quebec and it's a government that takes care of 14 Inuit communities. These are completely remote communities. There are no roads. It's all fly in. And uh, so, you know, when we, before I got up there, they they sent me some you know documentation about Inuit life. And, you know, they were we were given a course, like all new employees are given a course on the culture and, you know, especially because something I, you know, you don't really have a lot of exposure to. Now, they're always described as very resilient people and they've lived in, you know, it's, it's a harsh, harsh environment. You can't live there if you're not resilient. But there's been a lot of problems, especially since about the 50s. Um, and I see all these social workers and, uh, you know, like some of them are healthcare workers, but they're fresh out of university 
it's like kind of like their first job or they're, they're at the tail end of their career. But most of the ones fresh out of university, everything they've done is to tell these people that they're victims. Right. And I'm like, how are you helping them? Like, right. You know, there, there was a lot of bad done and I'm, I, I'm not saying we should hide from that, but how is just continuously telling someone who they're a victim going to help them to overcome it? It doesn't. As far as I understand, it's directly at odds with all of the psychological literature about about these these issues. And it's really a problem. I'm friends with a number of social workers and uh, Peter is as well. And we keep running into. So, you know, you talk about infecting other fields. It's like it's becoming standard practice, for example, in social work in many U.S. states to where if um, I were a social worker and I were to go talk with uh, any racial minority and ask them, do you feel like racism contributes to the problems that you're having that led you to have to talk to a social worker? Then, and they say no, then I'm supposed to coach them on how, yes, actually racism is part of the problem and you're a victim of a, of a society that's screwing you over. And then this is considered to be standard. And then um, in other states, it's considered to be uh, the first thing. So let's say that I'm a social worker working with homeless populations and I come across a white homeless person who is, uh, you know, down and out and whatever their issue. I mean, maybe they're crazy. Maybe something's wrong. Maybe they're just lazy. I don't know. Whatever the problem happens to be. Um, and you come up to them and you, you start to talk to them. The first thing you're supposed to educate a white homeless person on a homeless person is his white privilege. And it's like, who thought this up? And the, the answer to that question is really simple. It is people who decided that this political agenda about power dynamics in society that are rooted in matters of identity is the single most important thing to inject into everything and to create people who think in similar ways that they do so that their their politics have a broader base of support both in terms of, you know, cultural support, which means that people don't run into um, cognitive dissonance by running into alternative views, but also in terms of uh, legal and uh, administrative support in the sense of, of fashioning laws and, and regulations within corporate structures, et cetera. Um, I just wanted to, I don't want you to speak on them because obviously you can't speak for Mike. Uh, but the videos he'd done about what had happened at Evergreen and the third one just happened to come out this morning uh, and I, I was watching it and there was one point in there where one of the students said, didn't you teach us this, how to do this in your class? And then yesterday or the day before the, the an article came out about how the, um, the president uh, Burgess, Burris, he was getting fired. Burgess. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought of two things. I thought of, uh, I'd worked in Haiti after the earthquake and you know, I was there for close to two years. I was speaking to a lot of people there. And they talked about how Aristide, when he got into power, he'd let loose some gangs to terrorize the people so he could send in the police and gain some control. But then he lost control of the gangs. And then I thought of that. And the other thing I thought of was these people have created their own golem. Sure. You know, and it's, yeah. So it, it's true. Um, they are doing what they're taught. And the thing that, that I reflected on with that is the ongoing thing. If you saw Mike also put out a video that was from some secretly recorded audio from the Middlebury disaster that's also going on right now in Middlebury yeah. College in Vermont. Yeah. And you see the same thing. You see students echoing in 
perfect. I mean, for us who know the literature now, perfect, uh, perfect stringing together of, of feminist epistemology or contemporary intersectional feminist epistemology. And the same message, basically, you taught us this and now we're putting it to application. And so there's this definite sense that that's what's going on. Somebody, the the scholars who are are laundering these ideas into their own journals so that they look like knowledge are then teaching it because it looks like knowledge. They're making it standard practice in a number of fields. Many of our papers actually contain practice implications that advised counselors, social workers, and so on. To imp- I mean, the, the paper we, where we rewrote a chapter of Mein Kampf had an eight-point plan that was stolen from Hitler for how to organize the Nazi party for how social work should reorganize itself intersectionally. And so it's like this stuff is being put into practice. It is being put – it is rife through what's called pedagogy or, or education journals, educational theory journals. It is literally that you have these scholars – laundering these ideas and then using them through their teaching appointments and through other scholars teaching appointments to teach them to students who are then putting them into action at schools like Evergreen and at Middlebury and at Sarah Lawrence. And you can see exactly what's happening. Um, For example, the Middlebury thing, there's a point early on in the the video Mike put out, I think it's in the first 30 seconds or first minute or something. It's very near the beginning where the students are talking about how they are exhausted and it's limiting their academic freedom. And so they're talking actually at that point about to, to try to to tell people that um, bringing somebody with anti-gay marriage views to campus is damaging to LGBT students. Okay, so you have this, but that's textbook Miranda Fricker testimonial injustice. It's straight out of the literature. I think that's like a 2007 paper or something like that. Then they start talking about how um, they try to explain it and nobody understands them. And they talk to this professor and the professor comes, Eric something comes back and says that, you know, you're not going to be able to change their mind. You're not going to be able to reach them. You're not going to be able to do this. And so that's textbook. So Miranda Fricker's idea was, was developed further and expanded by Christy Dotson in 2014. And it's her concept, a broader concept of, uh, epistemic, uh, oppression. And in fact, it's, what the professor is referring to at that point instructing these students is the third order of epistemic oppression, which is called irreducible repression uh, or oppression. And so you see this textbook concept and then he rolls into, so you need to go and ready, be ready to ask disrupt uh, questions that are disruptive, not to the, to the event, but to his ideology that undermine his ability, you know, expose his, his lack of grounding in this. And then the students go to the, to the administration who happens to be at this case, in this case, a gender studies professor who's become an administrator uh, big surprise there. And they go to, and they say that this is what the professor told us, but no, it's not our job to educate all the time. Well, that's, that's Nora Berenstain's epistemic exploitation. Anybody who took a contemporary class that was infused with intersectional feminist epistemology learned those concepts. And now the students are taking exactly what they're learning in their grievance studies courses or their required diversity courses, which most schools now require one to three of them, and they are putting it into action. These are the exact theories coming out of the scholarship that we tried to point out has a at the best, a crisis of trust surrounding it, and they're being applied, and we can all see the results of them being applied. Your Evergreen's a hot mess. It's radioactive. Mizzou still hasn't recovered from its one in, you know, significant incident of this type. Um, 
I don't know what to tell you, but Middlebury is going full evergreen now, whether Sarah Lawrence will go that way or not. How many liberal arts colleges have to fall before, you know, people are like, wait, this stuff ruins organizations. How many, my, I, I talked to a, a, a friend of mine the other day who is, is a skeptic that this problem is occurring. And I started pointing out Evergreen and so on, and he said that those are outliers. Those are extreme liberal arts colleges, and it, of course things are weird there because they're always weird at extreme liberal arts colleges. And he said he wouldn't buy into that there's a real problem till a big state school or a major Ivy League school falls. But how long do we have to wait for that? Because this divisive thing tears apart everything that it touches. It's trying right now even with the biggest evangelical Christian thing in the country. And it will succeed. You'll see churches in the next five to ten years splitting like mad over whether or not the central sin that the gospel is referring to is white supremacy or not. So Robin D'Angelo is going to be the new Martin Luther and nailing stuff up on the cathedral? Well, she's not going to nail anything <laughs> up on any cathedrals, but she she actually is a figure. I don't know that she's initiating a reformation so much, mm. but she is actually creating a— uh, a new ideological premise that is able to worm its way into pretty much every institution that's either liberal or in the case of the church that operates on um, trying to overcome the problems that come from, I, I mean, I want to just say guilt having been raised Catholic and just make it really simple. But I know that a lot of Protestants would say that, that their religion's not about guilt, but I don't know. I see them cry over like the sacrifice of Jesus and how they're not worthy. And it's, it's in there, man. So anyway, they try to manipulate this kind of stuff and it's very, very effective. It ma manipulates liberal institutions because it creates this sense that we have to, um, that we're not holding up our end of the bargain where it comes to marginalized and, and, and oppressed people. But of course, it presents a caricature of the realities of life. And when they're called on it, they just say, ah, either there's this conspiracy that, that explains how it's still in operation, or they say, look at historical stuff, therefore it's still relevant, or they point to both at the same time and feel like they have an ironclad argument. So it, it, it's very, very effective. It, warming its way in and parasitizing and then tearing apart organizations. Um, okay. Just, I don't have a lot of good stuff to say about Luther in general, but yeah. at least he was fighting against what he thought was a truly corrupt institution um, in the Catholic church with its whole culture of indulgences and everything else yeah. that was going on. But Okay. So I just want to, so let's say Evergreen or Middlebury or Sarah Lawrence or, you know, any one of them or all, all three of them, fail, collapse, and go bankrupt, and they have to shut down. Would that then vindicate their idea that saying, see, it is because of the racist, it is because of the misogynist? Of course. Of course. No matter what happens, whether the thing succeeds, it would, it'll be because the students had had enough and they were able to have their revolution and everything's working great now because our ideology is great. And if it fails, it's because the racist society is so white supremacist that it shut us out of existence and it just proves that our society isn't ready for these radical ideas, blah, blah, blah. It's set up to where it cannot fail. And that's why the forthcoming election in the U.S. is so freaking scary. What people don't understand is that, you know, I keep hearing conservatives say we need to uh, to elect reelect Trump or if Trump doesn't end up running, we have to elect the conservative guy because it's the only way to teach these people a lesson that their their stuff doesn't work. And maybe it'll eventually scare enough people in the middle, but it's the most effective way that's ever come about as far as I can tell 
for the grievance people to push their narrative and that their claim is true. Only a truly racist and, and white supremacist society in which white women throw brown and black women under the bus, et cetera, could possibly elect somebody like Donald Trump. It's it's like a confirmation of everything from their perspective. It's a confirmation of everything that they say. So if Trump gets reelected as a means of fighting against this, it's actually one of the best tools ever for them to confirm the narrative that that they're trying to push and they're going to radicalize a ton of people on the left who find that to be a true uh national and international emergency on the other hand if one of their intersectional lunatics like goes up there somebody saying that the future is feminist and the future is intersectional and they get elected who the hell knows what kind of crap they're going to i mean are people going to start showing up at my door over my tweets you know like the cops coming so who knows? You know, it's like somewhere in the middle, there's the thing and then everybody hates the middle. So it's like this is really a fraught situation um, because theory can never be wrong. That's the most again, like here's the single thing that I want people to know about theory is that it can never be wrong. Um, it's always somehow that the everything can be reinterpreted. And it is. It's an interpretive lens through which everything can be reinterpreted to be consistent with itself so it's always whatever happened it's always a vindication of the theoretical construct uh and especially when things go wrong that's proof that it's you know a a system of power that's that's trying to hold down change and when things go right it's because obviously it's on the right side of history i mean it's it's designed to be irrefutable and unfalsifiable like, oh, what you're going on from something that you said, like, you know, if Trump got elected, it's going further right, people going further left. Um, I've been a little cliche about it, and I use that, uh, uh, the Keats, the, the line from the Keats poem, um, the second coming, you know, the center cannot hold, and then, you know, finishes that stanza with the, the best last all, best lack all conviction, while the worst have, are filled with passionate intensity. But something you'd said on the Joe Rogan show, you compared it to a centrifuge, and that's exactly what it is. It's... The further we like, if 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 Trump is too far right, there's no way we should go that far left. I mean, you're just going to tear everything apart. Correct. Um, it's it's really frightening. The biggest point to take home from that, you know, I can I, I'm really good at trying to make predictions that don't work for what's going to happen politically. Um, so I don't trust my political predictions whatsoever. However, I will say that I'm not wrong. Where when I say that the interpretation from within the social justice left, if Trump is reelected, will be that they are absolutely right. And it's even more important that they push their shit even harder. I'm absolutely right about that. I'm no doubt in my mind as to what influence that will have on the swath of the middle electorate. I don't know. Um, I also happen to agree with you that the center can't hold. Uh, especially in times like this where things are so polarized and so many people put existential dread on the other side. So for me, it goes back now to it's time to just, for as many people who are exhausted with politics, to start acting responsibly like they're exhausted with politics. So you can be exhausted with politics and drop out. That's irresponsible. You can be exhausted with politics and say, you know what, I'm going to start building relationships and friendships and we're going to leave politics out of it. We're going to reach across the table. We're going to be friends with one another. I'm going to have the Republican guy next door over to my barbecue. He's going to have me over to you know, hang out with his kids or whatever it happens to be. 
uh, we're all going to go hiking together and we're going to leave politics right the hell out of this and we're going to be friends and we're going to build relationships in a way. I mean, that's the responsible way to drop out of politics is to start making it irrelevant again. And so then that becomes a shield against getting radicalized by people who are screaming histrionically from the edges. Um, have you heard of this? So or- I- Sorry. Have you heard of this organization called the Better Angels? They are yeah, actually yeah. trying to do that. Yeah, that's uh, Stephen Pinker's thing, I think, right? Well, no, I, I, well, that's his or book. It's, but it's an organization, and I, I, I saw a couple of videos, and honestly, the videos are boring. But what they're trying to do is really good, and actually seems to be working out. They'll take a group of twenty to thirty people, you know, uh, half from one side of the political spectrum, half from the other side. They get them together. They start talking. Like you said, they share a meal. They sit around. And at the end of it, they're like, okay, we're not that different. Yeah, yeah. There are proven ways to facilitate that too. I don't I don't know the specifics of what Better Angels is doing, um, but I have heard really good things about the organization just to say that. Uh, I don't know what, what it's doing specifically, but I know that there are ways to facilitate that. So, for example, if you take people who are the, uh, on, on opposing ends of, of politics or religion or something, and you have them work, you don't even bring the politics or religion thing up necessarily. You have them work to solve a problem together or to build a thing together. You in some way create the sense that they are on a similar team with similar shared values somewhere, then what they tend to do is moderate the intensity of their political discussion and they're more willing to listen to one another. They're more willing to get along and have productive conversations about their their differences. And they're willing more much more willing to overlook their differences and see the human behind the thing. It all comes down to this building uh, a sense of shared values. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to put people on a team of some kind, basic social identity theory. It's like hacking the same, hacking the same mechanisms that drive the problem to solve the problem. So get them to do something where they have a shared value, for instance, um, successfully, you know, building the desk or reorganizing the room or whatever. I mean, a lot of times these are kind of token projects that they put them in. And then, what you find is a very high proportion of people who are able to set their differences aside and remember that the other person has very similar values at heart, even if they have very different ways of trying to express or, or uh, put those values into action. And it helps humanize instead of dehumanizing, you know, words like libtard and and I'm trying to remember some of the ones for the Republicans. I stop reading like I, People think that, you know, I mute on Twitter, for example, or on social media, I mute and unfollow people um, mercilessly, almost <laughs> with, with, I mean, it's really bad. I almost wrote an essay. I got really bad about it a few weeks ago where I was thinking about writing an essay. It's like, you know, you think you're special. You think I won't cut you out of my life in an instant, but I've been practicing on Twitter. You're wrong. And so it's like... Um, it's really kind of grim. I had a huge like self-reflective moment about what social media is doing to me psychologically. But the, uh, the truth of it is, is that I cut people out. I don't cut people out because they have an opposing view. I don't cut people out because they disagree with me. In fact, I probably cut people out who agree with me more often than people who don't, which is shocking for a lot of people to, to hear. I haven't quantified it, so I don't know that for sure. But if somebody starts ranting about, you know, libtards or as I can't remember a slur word for Republicans at this point, it's because every time somebody starts using those words, they're gone. 
I don't listen to people who can't talk about people they disagree with in dehumanizing terms. Or sorry, who only talk about them in dehumanizing terms. Yeah, it's okay. Like that was some some of my friends and, you know, some people I was, you know, dealing with online stuff. I would point that out, especially like people are saying they were just red-pilled, you know, and you're using the exact same strategies and, you know, oh, you can't talk with those people. They don't listen. I'm like, well, they say the exact same thing about you. So where does that leave us? Right. You know, or they'll use like, you know, libtard or snowflake or, you know, like the, the, you know, Ben Shapiro sells that mug, uh, leftist tears, all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, Candace Owens, I don't really know that much about her. I don't follow her, but from hearing everything she says, to me, it sounds like, you know, she's just using the same strategy, but it's a different rhetoric now. Like the focus of her disdain is something else. And I, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I I think about this a lot. You know, I talk with people who are, are you know, avatars of this problem from 10 or 15 mm-hmm. years ago who are therefore right wing figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to put it to them a little bit. You know, I'd like to sit down and talk to somebody like Glenn Beck and be like, you know, it's cool that you're all about building bridges, but I keep hearing you be like the Democrats, the Democrats, the Democrats, the Democrats. It's like, really? You know, back off on that a little bit. You know, let's build some bridges. Um, when you, especially though, when people start using the the dehumanizing rhetoric, uh, I just don't have time or space for that in the stuff that I bring in. So if people want to throw that stuff at me, for example, on Twitter, I mean, it's it's. It's zero. I know it's bad to have zero tolerance policies, but my Twitter is is mayhem as it is. So um, my Twitter notifications, even with having muted like thousands of people, literally, I still get something like six to seven thousand notifications a day. It's just really out of control as I can't keep up with it. And so I have to do things to make that experience, you know, at least not negative. And so if I see people use because I like to engage on Twitter. I like to be, to build friendships on Twitter. People might not think that's the case, but it's true. I like to actually interact with people who interact with me in a positive or funny or, or whatever way. And I hate to miss that stuff and leave them hanging. But it's like, if you come to me with stuff like, you know, this just vicious rhetoric about the side you don't like, Usually it's, I don't care if you agree with me or not, you're gone. I don't have time to let that into my world. Uh, you're, you may have had a great opinion and you just lost your chance to, to share it with me because I can't make time for, for that level of negativity. If people want to tweet that kind of stuff, you know, I probably won't follow you, but whatever. But if you're going to start throwing that in replies and then you're going to make that the basis of your argument or whatever, it's, you're gone. I I just don't have time for, for that. And, uh, I don't feel like it, it, there's a problem with that. I think actually more people should probably do it. You shouldn't reward people who are acting like jerks by giving them the attention that they want. Yeah, I know. I just did. Um, look, I've taken up quite a bit of your time and I know I'm you know, keeping you away from a mountain of emails. So I do have a mountain of emails. Um, if I you had any, uh, you know, like where people can contact you, if you have anything you want to talk about that's that, you know, you've got going on, um, we'll give you the last word and sure. thank you very much again. It was, it was great talking to you. Yeah, man. Uh, it's been a really fun conversation. So what have I got going on? Um, we're actually in the process of, of, of building things going forward. So I think everybody who listens should keep watching our space. The best place to watch for now is Mike Nana's YouTube channel. 
uh, which is YouTube and Mike Nana, N-A-Y-N-A is how you spell his last name. And then keep an eye on our Twitter feeds. Um, one of the things we're actually doing at the moment is trying to uh, build a centralized platform. A lot of people keep saying, where's your website? Where's your website? Well, we're working on it. Um, we're trying to get it right before we put it out. And we're still struggling with some of the, the details before we, we launch prematurely. So we're, we're building something that should be coming out, you know, before terribly long. And we hope people will, you know, at that point, you know, we'll, we'll start paying attention to that. Uh, I can't give you anything to follow because one of the things we're arguing about is what to call it. So we don't even have a name yet. So, I mean, we have an idea. We just don't have a, a brand to give it yet that you I could point you to. So, you know, stuff's coming. Pay attention. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Conceptual James. If you want to reach out to me other than just on, you know, my mute festival, my DMs <laughs> stay open. Uh, so you can send me a message that way if you want to get in touch. And I mean, each of us has a Twitter. We're all easy to find at Peter Bergoshan, at H Pluckrose, at Mike Nana, and should be able to um, keep up with what we're doing. And I really hope a lot of people do that. All right. Well, okay. One quick last question. Are you going to change your Twitter bio to renegade gen- from renegade gender scholar to renegade grievance scholar or going to leave it? I don't down? think so. I mean, most of the work that I actually did successfully was in gender. So I want to give people the critics that have said, yo, you didn't do that much successfully about race or whatever. I'll give them that bone. Um, also, it plays into the thought magnet thing, right? So I'm a renegade gender scholar and a thought magnet. So it's very important that, that those match. I don't know. I'll change it here and there. I, I don't take it seriously, and I laugh my head off every time somebody does. I got some angry feminist the other day who's like, I won't read anything by somebody who calls themselves a thought magnet. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, you think I'm serious? After Renegade Gender Scholar, you think that's ser- It's as cute as fuck. You think I'm serious with my Twitter bio? Come on. It's a joke. It's just fun. Yeah, but Huber's kind of dead. Anyways, thank you very much again, and thank you everyone for listening, and I'll be back soon.